On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're busting out the celebratory playlist because remember last week when we said High Fidelity was not, in fact, airing this week after all? Well, it turns out we were wrong because it's back on the schedules and thank God for that. But that's not all. This week also sees us spending some time with Aquafina in the rather unorthodoxly titled Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Trying to keep up with Catherine Ryan's Agent of Chaos in The Duchess or Catherine Ryan is Netflix's The Duchess, if you will. <laughs> and finally, learning about the art of the Singapore grip in ITV's adaptation of the J.G. Farrell novel, which is ruder than it sounds. It's also a show starring the legendary David Morrissey, who dropped by the podcast this week to shed some light on the subject personally. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, the show that stands between you and crap TV shows like a kind of televisual secret service agent, fending off assassination attempts from the likes of Million Dollar Beach House to make sure that only the good stuff gets through to assault your eyeballs. And joining me today are the other two pillars of the Pilot Triumvirate. First up, a woman who has returned to us after two weeks away, having abandoned us for our 100th episode, but returning in time for the big 102, which is just <laughs> as momentous an occasion. It's Terry White. How are you, Terry? I'm Have all you right, returned? Do you feel you. rested and recuperated? Well, I went on holiday with a one... No, it's not one years old. How old's my baby? Six months old. <laughs> Which, let me tell you, is probably the most stressful thing that's ever happened to me. I think it's worse than labour. Um, so I wouldn't say I was rested, but, um, you know, it's a good job I love him. <laughs> entertaining but not all that dissimilar to i think doing this podcast with us exactly. uh, and speaking of which joining us as well is of course the man the myth the legend it's tv's boyd hilton how are you boyd i'm very well do not diss million dollar beach house by the way <laughs> hang on haven't we already established that it was just no selling sunset yeah it is no selling sunset but it'll do in the meantime <laughs> oh my god what's happened in the two weeks where i've been gone yeah. that james is referencing selling I sunset <laughs> i know like, i should shit. point out I should point out, boy, that my mother watched Selling Sunset oh, based excellent. on your and Tom Ellis's oh, recommendation. Yes. She, she like was it? not impressed oh. at all. She doesn't understand why people listen to it. She thought the people were terrible. Yeah, she couldn't get it. Didn't understand why oh. people watch it at all. Sorry, Mrs. Dyer. Apologies. Yeah. 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 But not impressed. Not impressed. Okay. But uh, what what have you got for us this week, boy? What have you been watching? What reality gems can you unearth for us? Um, it is a bit of true crime, actually. It's it's um, it's a series called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark" on Sky Crime. This is an eight, this is a posh HBO true crime documentary, though. Um, it's uh, it's all about Michelle McNamara, who wrote the book called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark." She's a true crime journalist, um, probably like one of the one of the most revered and respected true crime journalists in the world at the time. Um, and she became obsessed with um, the Golden State Killer, who's, who is a serial killer who um, committed more than 50 rapes and probably something like 15, 16 murders um, in the 70s and 80s. And he, he was like the most prolific criminal in this regard who did who wasn't really famous in quotes you know like the zodiac killer etc um son of sam all these are kind of became very very famous but for some for some reason this this guy did not reach that level of fame and it's this series is about so many things it's about why that was true it's about michelle mcnamara's life and career herself it's about so it's about her she's of course married to Patton Oswalt the 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 great actor and comedian and it's he talks about so she's she's no longer with us he talks about her and her story and it's about their relationship to some extent it's about loads and loads of things it's a six-part series it's not like 
I would say it's like a slow burn of a of a documentary series. It's not kind of instantly um, riveting and eye catching, and 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 um, but it's very very increasingly compelling. And by the end of it, I watched the whole thing throughout the week. It's it, it's it's there's so many things about crime and true crime and the genre itself, and it's fascinating. Yeah. So I'll be gone in the dark. It's on Sky Crime. All all it's all there now. Terry, what have you been watching in the last two weeks? Well, I've also been watching I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is exactly what Boyd says. It is incredible. And, you know, it... She was a fascinating woman, an incredible journalist, was kind of really immersed in and intrigued by and doing incredible seismic work within true crime before kind of it became this this big popular thing it is now before Serial and all of that. She was kind of working in this for years and years and years. And as Boyd said, it's beautifully done. It elevates it somewhat, I have to say, and it and it's part biography and it's part digging into how she um basically helped help to solve this crime as well. Um so I love that. But I also watched all of, because I wasn't here to review it with you fine gentlemen, all of I Hate Susie. Hmm. No. Holy <laughs> motherfuck. So I Came back from holiday, couldn't watch it on holiday. Came back and I watched the entire thing in 24 hours, back to back. Um, yes, I have a six-month-old baby. I can't, I mean, it's so gutted I missed um, the episode talking about it because we talk about this a lot. We talked about it with I May Destroy You, um, but this, the innovation and the energy and the fantasy and the slight surrealism and the writing holy shit the writing lucy preble is a genius um i just absolutely loved every single second the first two episodes make me made me feel like i was going to have a heart attack or at least Mm -hmm. a panic attack um and (laughs) as it kind of went off the rails I kind of loved it even more. The naturalism of it, that cocaine scene in the hotel room is with Dexter Fletcher is one of the most realistic mm. what people are like on cocaine scenes I've ever seen in film or television ever. Just the kind of underlying mundanity of it as opposed to like the big kind of theatrical moments. I loved how they nailed that. Billy Piper does a very good coked up um, actor. <laughs> and oh, I just, from start to finish, I just can't get over it. Honestly, I can't get over it and I cannot believe we've had that and I may destroy you and I'm not just lumping them together because um, it's women I'm lumping them together because they are two of the best things I've seen on telly in years and we've had them in such close succession dealing with really interesting stuff done in a way we've never seen done before and maybe people if more women wrote these shows and conceived these shows um, and show ran, show ran, show run, whatever these shows, then we would have more of this and we wouldn't be talking about how it's stuff we've never seen before. I loved every minute of it. I honestly can't get over it. Um, the other thing I've been watching is reported missing on BBC. Mm. Have you seen this, boy, Dee? This yep. has got you written all over it. James, yep. you will hate this. So <laughs> this <laughs> is a show which follows um, a police force as they look for a missing person. It's one person per week. Usually there was one episode where it was two. And essentially it's charting from the moment that person goes missing to the moment they're hopefully usually found um it is so well done it is so slick it is not i know you've got in your head like a version of like cops plus big brother maybe but it's really not it's really really brilliantly 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 done that's on bbc one i think there are three or four episodes um on there right now 
that's kind of it. Oh, but I do also, at which some point I want to do my top five shows because. Oh, oh yeah. yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. well, let's go on to that in a second. Let me uh, let me tell you what I've been watching recently. So, Terry, you'll be very proud that uh, at Tom Ellis's behest, I started watching Happy Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked a lot about this last week on the show where I watched the first two episodes and found them a little bit, shall we say, sad. Uh, and they brought me <laughs> down a touch. Didn't live up to the title. Had a few issues with that. Boyd and I had a lovely conversation about empathetic buffers. And, uh, and, and, but what, what really bothers me about this board is you've seen Happy Valley, right? And I yeah. told you I'd seen the first two episodes and I was struggling with it because it was a bit depressing. At no point did you think to, I don't know, mention casually, maybe in conversation, just passingly, that the third episode is the most devastating thing that's ever happened in the history of television. What is wrong with you and why would you do this to me? Yeah, it only gets worse. That's, that's yeah. the, thing, really with, yeah. that's the mean, thing with Happy Valley. It yeah. increasingly oh, gets worse. Yeah. It destroyed me. And, like, and this like the first, and the death and the oh my god and the car and the oh jesus and this was like in the first 10 minutes of the episode do you know and, how many yeah. times i've told you to watch happy valley oh, yeah. and you've yeah. ignored me and then lucifer comes in <laughs> yeah I mean, lucifer yeah. comes in yeah, it's true yeah. it is true but you yeah, did also to say to me it's soul crushingly miserable and yes. so that was maybe what what put me off but tom tom lied he said oh it's not depressing we talked about no it's great it's great it's not depressing at all it really is depressing mm-hmm. i have however Watched all six now of the first uh, of the first series, and it is very, very good. It's also very unexpected that you know one of the story arcs that you think will be the meat of the entire series essentially wraps up two episodes from the end, and then it becomes something slightly different. Um, but yeah, it's really loud, and her performance is just magnificent. In fact, all the performances in it are pretty fucking magnificent. Uh, I thought it was very, very good indeed. But yes, a laugh riot. It is most certainly not. So, uh, so there you go. Um, that's not the only thing I watched this week. I also watched. All of the Outsider, which we reviewed, obviously mm. reviewed a while back, and I never went back to for one reason or another. And I think to try and you know rescue me from the sort of misery doldrums that Happy Valley put me, I think what can I, what can pull me out of this funk? I know a show about a monster <laughs> killing children and feeding off the misery of their relatives. <laughs> that seemed like the obvious panacea to my depressive ills. So I went straight for that and uh, really really liked it. Like I devoured the Outsider, uh, no pun intended. And uh, it's it's I think it's ten episodes, but I, yeah, I, I stormed through it as quickly as possible. Really really thought it was very good and uh, it makes me realize like, how difficult it must be to adapt these epic king tomes when they do them as movies you know what i mean because there's so much meat to them like this is 10 hours of, of television did not feel particularly padded to me at all it felt like they dealt with the plot as it needed to be dealt with but that's a lot of tv but yeah i loved it loved every minute i thought ben Mendelssohn brilliantly understated in that in that role i thought he was great so uh, uh i don't know if i'm sure boyd you have watched all of the outsider but yeah, terry yeah. if you I've... haven't watched it all do yeah, no, I said at the time, I, I remember thinking, really loving, absolutely loving it for about the first six or seven. And I, I felt it's the Stephen King thing that often happens, I think, with his stories that I absolutely love them when it's like his social realism, um, you know, in, in, you know, the kind of the kind of mid, 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 cl- mid and working class communities he looks at in Maine, wherever, you know, in this small town, all of that. I love all that. And but then when, I, I feel it does go tend to, they do his stories do tend to go off the rails for me when when the climax the big monster climax arrives like it is the classic mm. example it's a disaster yeah. I mm. think the ending not so much this but it kind of does the same thing for you I felt it like veers off the edge in the last couple of episodes just because of the Stephen Kingisms of, of his storytelling and it, it really frustrates me because that you know and and 
I think the same thing, but it is one of the best. In, uh, right up until I would say episode seven, eight from memory, it's one of the best Stephen King adaptations ever. Yeah, it's fantastic. Cynthia Erivo, incredible. Yeah, oh, so good, yeah. so good, and that character's great. Yeah, character's uh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, but I think it's. I think when many maybe loses you is when it tips from sort of suggestive supernatural shadowing yeah. to overtly supernatural. Yeah. yeah, because then you're like, what? Well, the, then you're, in the end, it's a it's a monster story, and it's yeah. like, what's yeah. what are the stakes there, and what what do you think is going to happen? You know, it just becomes a bit predictable and i don't i don't know what the way out of that is because so many of his novels end up that way yeah it deals with a lot of issues that i found very interesting and i really liked one of the questions it asked which is you know ben Mendelssohn, who's the skeptical character he doesn't want to deal with this thing the idea that if i open the door to this if i accept that this is real what is the world I'm living in? Like, it totally, fundamentally and irrevocably alters his worldview, and that's the thing he struggles yeah. with more than anything else, that he can't yeah. make sense of the world if he accepts that this is a real thing. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting thing to play around with, uh, yeah, especially in the times we now live in. But, uh, but yes, The Outsider, good. Going back to I Hate Susie, oh my, I, I do wish, because I watched the first three episodes when we, when, we, when we reviewed it on the podcast, but I hadn't mm. seen the fourth, and the fourth, <gasps> which is, shall we call it, the wanking episode. The wanking is, episode. Is one of the most incredible single episodes isn't it of of yeah of recent times so yeah that i, I so I, everything is like well now you could be you just as you think you've got your handle on this whole series then the wanking episode arrives and you're like okay this is going to go to whole new places so to speak terry would you like to share with us now your top five i know you didn't get to do it because you were not here but go on go on <laughs> okay give us your top five shows of all time so that we may judge you this is like setting up for high fidelity <laughs> yeah, top yeah, five yeah. shows of terry white's life in with a bullet no so number five we're going to go in in reverse order obviously because i'm not a psychopath number five <laughs> charmed dear god <laughs> <laughs> number four the sopranos okay okay number three i may destroy you mm, wow number two this is england mm. Number one, there can be only one. Highlander. Do I even need to say the words <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer? That I mean, that does not surprise me in the slightest. But but I may destroy you at number three. That's mm -hmm. that's a big thing to say. Yeah, a big I thing I to say. I originally, do you know what? I originally had it at five because I thought you can't put a new show higher than five because it hasn't stood the test of time. And then True. I thought, no, Terry. Terry, no, you can do whatever you think's right, and I, it's 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 absolute soul shaking. Will be forever remembered TV, I think, and so it's it is my number three, and I stand by it. I mean, mm. my top five is essentially a mix of um, magic and vampires and, and brutality, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. kind of me, which is really. Doing that really yeah. yeah, this is England. <laughs> yeah. I feel I, uh, this is England. I, now from that. You know, I love this thing as well, but I do think of it as a show, your your show, like summing up most of your interests apart from the witches. Um, and you know, like, and the point about this is England being in there is this the this is England film doesn't cut my top ten of films, but the TV right, shows right. on such a completely different level. Um, yeah, incredible. Mm. I think I may destroy may may end up being in my top five eventually. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I think did I mention the last Russell T Davis? You see that he said that it, it, it's not only the greatest writing he'd seen this year. Or he, he said it was the greatest writing he's ever seen on TV. So I think yeah, I do. I do feel like I'm existing in a separate world to all of you. But I will. I have promised I, mean, I will revisit this before we do our end of year list. So I mean, James. 
Don't you normally feel like you're kind <laughs> yeah, of existing I mean, in a fair. different world that than the rest fair. of us? <laughs> yeah. Also, now that you've coped with Happy Valley, oh, God. because you didn't yeah. know yeah. what to expect, you can cope with I May Destroy You, think? you. Yeah. I, you think if I've, if I've lived through Happy Valley, I can, oh, I'm now I can deal with anything? Yeah, totally. Is Happy Valley Series 2 as miserable as Series 1? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right, great. But also, but, I'm, but here's the thing, right? <laughs> I know what your kind of uh, triggers are with telly and stuff, but I don't think I May Destroy You will have any of those for you. No, I agree, yeah. I think if you can do Happy Valley, I think I May Destroy You will be a cakewalk. And I, and actually it did, and that's what's brilliant about I May Destroy You is is it isn't a kind of a grim digging into trauma and sexual assault. It's it's very radical in how it treats it. Get all the way to the end, go like do the whole thing in as short a time as possible and see if you still feel the same. Will it pass my bell end test? Uh, mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, I mean, you wouldn't. We talk about this, but you wouldn't pass your own Bell and test, so I'm really not sure this is a this is a good test to use for like what you should be watching and who you should be engaging with. Or that's all I'm going to say. And we'll probably get into uh, this when we get to the reader question this week. I think you will pass week. your Bell and test because if you make it as far as like the latter, oh, it's hard, isn't it? But yeah. they address the Bell end issue themselves, yes. really. They talk about what, you know, why why do people adopt certain persona? I mentioned this, I think, at, at the time, you know, what am I am I a good do I do you, people thinking themselves as not a good guy is addressed interesting. It's one, yeah. one of the many, many brilliant elements of it. It answers Plato's original question. Does knowing you're a bell end stop you from being a bell end? <laughs> being a bell end. <laughs> exactly. Therein lies the question. Yeah. And as I said before, we've all got a bit of bell end in us. So, you know, <laughs> let us let us be not the one to cast the bell end stone. <laughs> I think he's- <laughs> the thing was, the thing was, is that when I listened to that podcast, when you said that, because I was not on that one, you said that and no one said anything. And I'm sure you did it on purpose because I was like, oh my God. How I can no did- one have- but the thing is, I definitely didn't do it on purpose and I didn't oh. even clock it until you I know, it no out. one else did either. And I was just, I'm dying here, <laughs> unable to contribute. Oh God. Anyway, anyway, let us move on now to this week's listener question, which comes to us courtesy of GJD at Dunderment, who says, Pilot team, who are your favourite female TV anti-heroines? Mine are Elizabeth Jennings and Helena from Orphan Black. Both good choices. Elizabeth Jennings, of course, being Kerry Russell's character in the Americas. This is a good question. Very specific, but I like it. I like it a lot. Who wants can to kick just, off? Can I just raise a point of order? Okay. Mm. Oh, God. Here we go. Here we go. I reject the whole concept of anti-heroines. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> all I'm going to say is, all I'm going to say is, they, there is, I believe, some confusion about the difference between a female anti-hero, or we could just call them an anti-hero, yeah. um, and just a finely drawn woman who has <laughs> flaws and faults. So I was like, I wonder what the internet says about this. So I Googled it, and in a list of female anti-heroes were Alison from The Affair, presumably because she has sex with a married man, even though you know she is the protagonist, Alicia Florick, right? In the Good Wife, like no. these, these. She's not we, an anti-hero. Well, exactly no. right. So my my point being, so we're basically talking about women who maybe do some bad things at some point. So that was my point of order. Okay. Okay. Um, because so, it is difficult, right? Because you go, is is Fleabag an anti-hero? Mm, mm. Probably she is, right? But also she's just a normal a normal yeah. woman who like I has agree. Yeah, casual I think it's a very important and, point. Yeah. I saw Hannah Horvath from Girls in on a yes. list. And I'm yes. like, hold on. The whole point of Girls is flawed 
three-dimensional women. She's not a fucking anti-hero her- yeah. heroine. It's just not... I think it's a, it, that is a miss... I wonder if Whatever. we should begin by defining the term. So the yes. term anti-hero literally means a central character who lacks conventional heroic attributes. Now, I would argue that these should not be gendered heroic attributes. So, but for example, conventional heroic attributes come from patriarchy, James. So we can't just like, <laughs> well, that's true. Like, I, okay, hate to, okay. I hate to be that person. But conventional heroic attributes are, are laid down by the patriarchy. So any woman who doesn't adhere to them is automatically viewed as an anti-hero. But Jessa from Girls is another example, et cetera, et cetera. But like, so, so from a conventional sort of male anti-hero, like Dexter, a classic anti-hero, who's the central character, he is the hero of the series, he's a serial killer. That absolutely <laughs> yeah. is an yeah. anti-hero. Well, all of those, all, this is an important point, all of the big, you know, the big male-dominated mm. classic TV shows, The Sopranos, yep. Mad Men, yep. Breaking Bad, yep. all of them, The Wire, have proper anti-heroes yes. at their centre. Criminals, yep. murderers... <laughs> <laughs> amoral, immoral people. Whereas Hannah Horvath in Girls is not that person. No, she's just a flawed she's not, that character. Yes. And I think right. there is a distinction there. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so people go, right, Carrie from Homeland, right? Yes. For example, because yeah. she yeah. is challenging. <laughs> yeah. She's not an anti-hero. <laughs> she is Jane definitely Tennyson. not an anti-hero. She's not an anti-hero. No. But these lists are full of them. And actually, yeah. Boyd has an amazing point, which is you, you immediately go, Dexter... Because he's a fucking serial killer, right? <laughs> yeah. So I go to that Villanelle, right? So Villanelle yes, 100%. is an anti-hero. But once you get past people like Villanelle, it is just women who are <laughs> normal. Well, Do you know what I, I mean? Or, or they're promiscuous. It's about morality. Actually, yeah. well, I've got a point now. I've got a really good point. <laughs> I was wondering. Actually, it comes down to morality, right? Because what you're doing is you're judging their, usually their promiscuity um some of them have mental illness um some of them are, basically they veer from i suppose conventional morality rather than conventional mm. heroic qualities carrie matheson i believe someone could i don't believe she is an anti-hero i can see how someone might make the argument i don't think it's to do with her mental illness i think it's to do with the fact that she can be particularly cold-blooded and ruthless and some of the stuff she does i mean certainly in the final season is morally very very murky so so you could you could maybe make that argument, but I wouldn't call her a classic anti-hero. I would say, and I'm sure this is on your list, Terry, I would say Faith from Buffy. That is yes. an anti-hero. Yes, exactly. She's, she's part antagonist, part heroic yes. character, you know, yes. in the same way that Spike is an anti-hero. Yes, because they, they possess some of those heroic qualities, yeah. um, but also kind of undermine those heroic qualities. I think it's much more cut and dry. I also think it is much more cut and dried within genre television, yeah, right, than it is within drama. Genre television. Well, so people talked about people use Game of Thrones as an example. I, I looked on the internet. There's a lot of this. Game of Thrones is an incredibly difficult thing to discern an anti-hero in because I think hero and villain are labels that don't apply particularly well to this show because it the whole thing is a morass of moral grey area. So people say, "Oh, Daenerys is an anti-hero." I said, "She really isn't because she starts out, I would say, as a classic heroic character, and then due to problematic plot turns just becomes a primary antagonist there's no point where she's an anti-hero she is a hero and then she is the antagonist uh i would say if you're looking at like people say cersei lannister is she mm. an anti-hero i'd say you 
could maybe make that case, but again, she's an ant- she's the primary antagonist in many ways. Um, except you do have parts of the story in the same way you do in the book. We have chapters from her point of view where you are designed to sympathise with her, but I don't think she's ever a heroic character. I would say you could make the argument that Arya possibly has anti-heroic qualities, not really in terms of the substance of her character, but in the fact that she trains to be an assassin and murders the shit out of people, which you could argue maybe not great heroic qualities. But again, it's all shades of grey. So I, Game of Thrones, I think, is, is is tricky. I think Cersei is an anti-hero. I'm sorry. Think? I think she really is. Yeah, I think she's a classic. It, because I think, you know, if she was a man, first of all, everything, you, you, he'd be, she'd be an anti-hero. She'd be a male anti-hero because you get to know her. You, you She has psychologically, you know, um, the, what her flaws are and what her, um, and, and she's, uh, the power obsession that she has and the the what she actually does in the show that her her actions are you know immoral and terrible but you get to know her but you, you also like slash love her as a character she's so entertaining and enjoyable to be with you know and and particularly i would say the season with the um was it the high sparrow when she's you know in yes. prison and she's be- she's being oppressed and all of that makes you makes you like her even more and yet she's a horrendous nasty person so i i think she's a classic anti-hero but i think that's I, I, I really the do. only part where you where your sympathies lie with her like you can empathize sure. with her and so because she's yeah, an incredibly detailed character but that's brilliant that you say the only part but that's a crucial part it like, is that whole plot line was fantastically um fantastically deepened her as a mm. character and in the books those are the, that's the first time you get chapters from her point of view like, up oh, okay. until then well, she's always I been a, a character who appears in other people's stories and at that point you start to see her in a monologue her inner life and her inner voice and that's i think gives you a real understanding and that's what makes that character so good because you do understand the layers of her so yeah maybe 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 she falls into her. i would have thought boyd you'd say selena meyer surely oh, is kind of selena meyer. yes 100 percent is 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 is, is, is she's Completely brilliant. And the brilliant thing about Selena Meyer in Veep, which is Julia Louis-Dreyfus in Veep, is that when that series first started, you thought, oh, she's going to be a bit like, you know, the characters in the thick of it. You know, the, the British version, the British political comedy that Armando Inucci, the same creator, did, where they're just kind of, re, you know, they're just realistic, flawed politicians, you know. Whereas Selena Meyer is something different. She is spectacularly manipulative and gets worse and more <laughs> more manipulative, less moral, um, more blatantly upset, ego, ego maniacal as well, as the show goes on. So by the time you get to the finale, one of the best finales, most underrated finales in TV history, she is a fucking monster. She's an absolute monster. But, you know, you love her. You love being with her. You lo- she's funny. She's hilarious. But she is gr- uh, she's almost grotesquely horrendous. But you- And it's completely believable because this is the world of... Amer- in the world of American politics, it totally makes sense mm-hmm. because it's so riven by insanity the insanity of individual power obsessions etc and and it taps into that psychosis so i think she's an absolute classic anti-hero anti-hero anti-heroine yeah she and, and just the whole a brilliant creation brilliantly performed by julia lou dreyfus yeah yeah it's the elizabeth jennings one is an interesting one because in she's only an anti-heroine in that you know, geopolitically, you see them, they're Russian spies in America, therefore technically they are on the wrong side of it. So it all very much depends on your in your position. I imagine if you were a Russian living at that time, she's absolutely a hero. There's nothing anti-heroic <laughs> yeah. about her. It's just yeah. because she's a Russian spy living in America. So it's an inversion of the traditional hero villain paradigm. But I don't know that I'd necessarily say she's massively anti-heroic, though she does kill a fair few people. 
And there is an important distinction, right, between anti-hero and villain. Mm. So what you were saying about Cersei is totally correct because without any of that kind of deepening of character and empathy, then she would just be a villain. Mm, yeah. And there is, and those lines between hero, villain, and anti-hero are, I mean, why can't we just have fucking heroes and villains? That's my pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. A lot of people listed Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica as an anti-hero. And again, I think she's a flawed heroic character. I wouldn't call her an anti-hero. I think she has lots of heroic qualities. She just smokes a lot and drinks a lot. Um, I.e. is a human being well, but has a vagina while doing it. Indeed. Whereas I would say someone like Six is perhaps an anti-heroic character because you're not like the morality of that character and where she falls. Like she's technically, you know, on the antagonist side, but she's definitely a character that you sympathize with, you empathize with and who you root for. So I'd say she's probably the anti-hero in, in that particular one. Gaius Baltar, he could have a bit of anti-hero about him in that he has terrible qualities, but you root for him because he's lovable and he's uh, he's a lot of fun. Um, but the of question course, is about anti-heroines, though, James. Yes, yes. Well, I, unfortunately, I just got sucked into the vortex of Battlestar Galactica there, and I derailed the whole thing. What about? I want to ask about what about um, Robin Wright in House of Cards? Yeah, I think so, because, definitely. Yeah, mm. yeah, because she starts out as kind of like Lady Macbeth, basically. Mm. Mm. But he is so horrendous. Funnily enough, I watched a bit of House of Cards again the other day because, I, 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 and I, it was so brilliant. Honestly, it's such a shame that it's now become the show season? that he. Um, oh, from the the last season, the last her season, yeah, her where season she, yeah, yeah, she's and she's so brilliant. And and that point, she her taking over from him is it actually was a brilliant way of yeah. kind of ending the show. But she was a proper three dimensional character, um, and yet you know committed horrendous, horrendous crimes. And I think she's a great anti heroine. I have to say, yeah, I agree. I think she's a she's a really good shout. Would you have classed Jessica Jones as an anti heroine? She's flawed. She's no, she kind of she just a flawed hero. A human yeah. hero. She's very, she's alcoholic and very sarcastic. Does that make one an anti-hero? Probably <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't think we. Can, I honestly don't think we could go from serial killer to likes a drink. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are modern society. They're on a par, right? Yeah, yeah. The women, anyway. Yeah. I mean, she Am eye right, rolls lads? a lot, and you know how Am we right, don't lads? like that. Yeah. There's yeah, nothing worse than a woman who eye rolls. <laughs> Stone her to death. <laughs> Any other calls? No. No. I would just like everybody who's written a list on the internet to go back, look mm. at that list, and ask yourself, <laughs> is this an anti-hero or is this just a woman? Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and on that note, GJD, I hope we have addressed your question. If you would like to ask a question of the Pilot TV podcast, then do please send it to us via DM at Pilot TV Pod, uh, or you can send it to me directly on Instagram or Twitter at James C. Dyer. Right, time now for this week's guest, who is the one and only Mr. David Morrissey, who we last saw wearing a ref's uniform in the most recent series of Inside Number 9, but who has starred in everything from Britannia to The Walking Dead, Thorn and Red Riding, and a ton of other stuff besides. Uh, more importantly, though, he stars in one of this week's shows, ITV's The Singapore Grip, a show that he chatted about with our very own Boyd Hilton. Uh, hello, David Morrissey. How are you doing? Welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast. I'm good. I'm in Suffolk at the moment. Uh, it's uh, my little little break, my st staycation. Lovely, lovely. And um, we're here to talk about um, your your very impressive new big new ITV drama, um, the Singapore Grip. Now, this I believe this was filmed last year. Was it 2019 in in Malaysia mostly? Yeah. It was. Does that it feel like a lifetime away, considering everything that's happened? You know, since? it feels so long ago. I mean, it was over a year i think yeah so 
Yes, it feels like a whole different world. It was a different world. And we filmed it in Kuala Lumpur and then up in Langkawi. And um, it's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, and we, you know, but it, not without its filming challenges, particularly from a weather point of view. Right. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a tough shoot, but really, you know, a great tale, I think. And you play, this is an adaptation of a J.G. Farrell novel which came out in the late 70s and was part of his colonial trilogy. And I've been reading, I think, I, think, I always think when, when the, a new drama arrives on TV, which is, has a colonial kind of, a, you know, a, yeah. a fact element to it, that people may start thinking, oh, this is a kind of, you know, almost like a, I don't know, like a kind of inherent celebration of that or it's but this is a definitely a satirical look at that whole time isn't it and i know and i, and I was interested to see that salmon Rushdie is a big fan of of jg farrell's books and 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 the critique they have of of these times that's part of is that part of what drew you to the whole story apart from your character it's a very interesting figure the whole idea that it is a critique of of uh british colonialism yeah very much so. i mean i, I before I read the uh, content, you know, the fact that Christopher Hampton was adapting, it was something that was a big plus for me because I'm a huge fan of his work. Uh, I knew uh, Farrell's book, uh, Troubles, which was um, part of the trilogy which deals with uh, Northern Ireland and the British in Northern Ireland. And he wrote a book called The Siege of Krishnapur, which is also fantastic about the British in India. And this is about the, uh, the Brits in, um, in Singapore and that sort of time when the Japanese uh, invasion of Singapore in 1941. And I think it's, yeah, it was, it is a satirical look. These people are not heroes. He doesn't present them in any way as, you know, sometimes we think of the British in empire as these, you know, great heroic figures. And he really doesn't present them in that way. They are seen, particularly my character, I think he's seen, he's a, he's not a, He's a businessman. He's involved in the rubber um, uh, industry in, in the Malaysian um, peninsula. He's exploitative. He's cruel. He's racist. He's greedy. He, you know, he's full of avarice. He's, uh, he's manipulative. And he will use anything in order to retain power and gain more power. He's at odds with the military machine. Um, and I think his his ruthlessness was something I really, really loved, actually. It was a chance to play that in a very sort of bold and, um, yeah, un unapologetic way. And the, you're right, it does have a satirical nature to it. You know, there is a sense of these people are monstrously funny. Yeah. But what they're doing is no less monstrous. I mean, I think they are – there's not – I wouldn't say they were caricatures because I think, you know, when I've listened to some interviews of people back then, either on old BBC stuff or, you know, some YouTube clips, there is an element of that going on, you know. And um, I recently watched a TV show about Princess Margaret's handmaid. You know, she was yeah. like her main handmaiden. And she, and, you know, the, the, they were in Mystique and, having this life and i watched that and i thought that's not a million miles away from what we're portraying here in in the singapore grip i think yeah absolutely but, yeah. but also the their entitlement mm. for this territory and the, and for the fact that this product which is you know robber is rightfully theirs you know it's and the, you know they they make some sort of 
um, gesture towards the local community. But actually, it's just all about greed and about the you know bringing it bringing the it back to the British coffers, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because your character is, the, I can sense it must have been great fun to play him because he is this kind of dapper, stylish, almost dandyish thing. His moustache and his whole kind of way, his his, his poshness, his way. there's some, something kind of great fun about him, even though obviously, he, as you say, he's a, he is a horrendous racist and has a huge sense of entitlement. But was it fun to play him from that point of view? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I think, as I said before, I think the idea that he's totally unapologetic, it was really fun. He's not, you know, he's not someone who you're ever going to um, – spent a lot of time in his conscience, you know, his, that he's, he's got a great conscience. I don't think he has that. And what I really was attracted to is, is the tools he uses around his manipulation of other people. He uses, he has a very strange relationship with his son. He's sort of very disappointed in his son. His son is obviously his heir apparent, but that's never going to happen because his son is such a wastrel. And he finds that very difficult. And he has to, because obviously he's also, you know, um, very misogynistic. He suddenly has to see his daughter mm. as the person who could, could take over and help him. And he slightly sheepishly starts to unveil this plan to his daughter about what might be able they might be able to put into place in order to retain their power. And she just goes for it a hundred percent to his delight. Yeah. And that that relationship of him suddenly seeing his daughter as this person who is in his mold is brilliant and i love that sort of sense of him and there's they have a slightly strange relationship anyway which is wonderful to sort of play with but the fact that he suddenly sees that she's as ruthless as unscrupulous and um sort of monstrous as he is 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 a delight to play this man this man sort of um uh yeah seeing his daughter for the first time in a way yeah, I was going to say there is a certain there's a slightly creepy uh, undertone to the whole father daughter yeah. relationship in this thing. I think it's very subtly, but it's definitely there, isn't it? There's definitely something not quite oh, right. It's there. it's there to be played. I think it's even more so in the book. Oh, that really? You feel you feel that these people, you know, not that they're having an active sexual relationship, uh, this father and daughter, but there's something that it's it's certainly going over a line of affection and love and uh, sort of attraction to each other. And um, that that's really interesting to play because actually what it's about, as we know in that way, it, it, as sex as power, you know, he's seeing his daughter, seeing her sexuality as powerful, as something he can use, as say has power on him and it can have power on other men. And sort of he pimps her out, really. Yeah, yeah. And she's she's absolutely uh, up for it you know she gets it she sees what it's about and you know there's a level of that sort of pimping out that we see in different stratas of our social society and this is at its very top and i think that's a very interesting thing to look at about how people in the upper classes of our society uh, are pimping out their daughters you know and, yeah there's and, a whole uh, kind of uh, under kind of decadence isn't there about these mm. these kind of brits live, living the high life and almost that kind of sexual element is definitely there bubbling under with your your son as well seems an incredibly decadent figure yeah and and, and actually sort of the, the monty who's the son is sort of debauched really mm. in the in the best sense of the word but also i think there's a sense that we'd like to 
certainly from a, an historical point of view, we like to think of ourselves as above certain things that we don't we don't do those things. That other people do that, uh, other races do that, other other nationals do that. But actually, we've been doing that for years. You know, the idea of gaining power via marrying our daughters off, any way to maintain power, pimping our girls out. You know, that's that's really in our tradition. And always yeah, has been. Yeah. And I think there's something in the Singapore grip that you see that in a very bold and, and sort of, um, you know, he he presents it in a comedic way, but it's very true. Yeah. I was surprised, but the tone is very, it's kind of sharp. There's a sharpness to it. There's a real, as we say, you use the word satirical, I keep using it, but I feel like it's not the kind of show, when you see the, you know, it's an ITV, it's, you know, period drama you might feel oh it's going to be like a downton or something not you know and downton's great mm-hmm. and it's a bit it's definitely not like that it's, it's definitely something very different it feels like something very different for an itv big epic it period is. drama. i have to say i was very i was delighted by its commission by itv because it's not something that you would not naturally place on that channel i think maybe mm-hmm. i don't i mean i'm not too sure but it, it it really is it's a it's a period that i i'm ashamed to say i didn't know a lot about because also, that period of our history was overshadowed by, uh, at the same time the Japanese went into uh, um, Singapore, um, Pearl Harbor happened. And in the, you know, in the annals of history, that, that event quite rightly has taken over. You know, there's, that's, that's the event of that time rather than the Singapore. Uh, Churchill called it the biggest capitulation in British history. And, you know, there, there was great, uh, we didn't come out of that uh, some, you know that sort of period in, in our military history with any any sort of uh, medals really we were very sort of it was really badly handled and I think that is something that is presented in the show but it's a complex show even though its tone is you know there's a lot of fun in there there's a lot you know also it looks amazing you know yeah. the sets uh, and costumes and the music and all that it has all that lushness to it but underneath it is a, a deeply uh, quite unpleasant people you know the hero is Luke Treadaway's character yeah. and I think you know he is he's a wonderful man with great ideals who's coming into to and he's the the force of change Whereas, you know, my character and, and the people around me are, are very much the old England, really, old Britain, I guess. Yeah. But it is, a, it is a, there's, although it looks like it has a, a frippery and a fluff around it, it really doesn't. There's something at the heart of it that is about the capitalistic danger, dangerousness of capitalism and, and, and all its greed and mm. uh, when, when, when it goes wrong, I would suggest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, but with this cast, I'm looking at you know Jane Horrocks, Charles Dance. It feels like a, a fun bunch of actors to be to be around. I'm I'm yeah. alright. Was, was the kind of in, in terms of you know kind of between 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 sequences? I imagine it might have been uh, a, a kind of an amusing time. Yeah, Carl Meany as well. Yeah, we had a great time. But but also you know it's a part of the world that is quite. Amazing. Obviously, it's you know it's the backpackers part of the world. So, and right. I never did that. I missed out on that. So I didn't. But I know a lot of other people went off. Jane Horrocks particularly went off to Borneo and stuff, and did a lot of touring and Thailand and Cambodia and stuff. And I never. I got to Thailand for like one weekend and just slept. <laughs> but um, I didn't have a, a lot of time to look around. But um, it is a beautiful part of the world. 
but you know charles dance particularly is a, an actor who i've admired i've been lucky enough to work with him in the past but i've been a great admirer of him and i think also he presents a part of that colonial history which is interesting because he's a man who believes himself to be quite integrated with the community mm. and he is a benefactor he does see the better himself as somebody who is adding to to the society around him rather than taking from it the true sense of how trade should be uh, conducted whereas walter my character who's his partner in crime or his partner in business and becomes his partner in crime is much more avaristic and sort of just about greed really yeah and yeah. Um, so you do see the, the different sides of that and yeah. then elizabeth town who plays um uh, vera who's just fantastic who's who's a character who's a real survivor you know she's a, a woman who's right in the middle of it and um somebody who has to live on her wits and i think you see that brilliantly and it's, i think that's a fantastic portrayal oh definitely yeah there's a great moment i thought it's a great moment and i think in the first episode where there's this big cake um made yes. in honor of charles dance's character and you you take the ear off his his likeness and it start eating i thought it was a great little kind of symbolic moment about of your whole character was that in the book was that original in the original was that something that was added it is in, in the, the book oh, is yeah, it? yeah okay. it's great and that cake because in the book obviously it says there's this fantastic likeness of uh, of charles's character yeah, um, Mr. Webb. And when we got the cake, it wasn't as great a likeness as Charles <laughs> as we would have liked. <laughs> right. It didn't. I thought that was I deliberate. Mean, yeah. No, we made it deliberate in the end. Yeah. But it was quite. It was quite uh, a lot of artistic license. I felt yeah. in that cake. But yeah, my character rather lovingly sort of, you know, it's for his birthday party, and my character starts lovingly looks at it and quite affectionately eats his ear, which yeah. is. Great. <laughs> It's Which a brilliant I moment. Doing. Yeah, yeah and um, there's lots of moments like that, I think, you know. And th th there is a sense of what's wonderful about it is that these are these, these people who are totally secure in themselves and their world mm. and what they're doing. They're totally secure in their worldview and their values and secure in their morals. And what we suddenly see is their world being shattered sometimes dr dramatically, but sometimes quite subtly, that their whole value system of what they live by is being eroded underneath them. And it, it's like we, we, we light the blue touch paper and we stand back and we watch them uh, struggling to keep hold of everything that they've known that has made them secure in yeah. their in the both their gender, in their nationality, in their in their uh, you know righteous behaviour, their commerce. It's all suddenly being picked away, and you know they are desperate to stay in their secure life, and they, they, that's been taken away from them. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch. Um, just talking generally um, in, in in your time, look, I know you're you're a, you're a kind of avid um, consumer of quality television. Have you have you been using the time to catch up on stuff or watch new stuff? What have you been? What have you enjoyed in terms of TV stuff recently? So I may destroy you. I just thought it was oh, a, yeah. a work of genius. I mean, I yeah. just thought it was a structural work of genius, but also just, you know, performing, writing, uh, like a whole new type of watching television. I love, like with normal people, I love this half hour drama format. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I'm really enjoying that. Uh, but I thought I may destroy you with something, particularly that last episode, I thought from a structural point of view was magnificent and really it blew me away. I'm loving Mrs. America. 
yeah. again, I think that's a, a brilliant, that's quite a conventional structure in that sense of taking um, each, each episode is focusing on one character in the, in the historical st- uh, story. But I think what's really brilliant about Mrs. America is how it takes a character that you could easily demonize somebody who's like the enemy really uh and somebody who you feel is um um, slightly warped i would suggest and really give her in Kate blanchett's performance uh, a sense of understanding compassion you give her a real sense of life and uh, and complexity and i thought that was a great choice in for from from the from the program makers and likewise uh, the other characters who you feel are heroic, uh, you know, from my sensibility on the right side, you see them in all their complexity and their difficulties and their inconsistencies. And uh, the, sometimes, you know, the battles that they they get wrong, uh, particularly in, uh, between the white femi- feminists mm. and the black political yeah. feminists. And, uh, you know, you see them getting those situations really wrong. And I think that um mess is brilliantly portrayed and and I, I'm, I'm loving that i think that's a great show how yeah, about fantastic. you what, what would you recommend boy oh i made destroy yeah it's just it's, i think yeah. that's been the best of the year um uh devs did you see devs which was i haven't um, seen devs that's oh, on my list yeah, yeah that'll be i think that's in my top three of the year yeah like yeah. spectacular yeah you got a great treat Oh, no, I yeah, would say I, devs. Yeah, make time for devs, definitely. Will, um, unfortunately, man. we've run out of time, annoyingly. But, oh. David, thank you so much. Congratulations on the senior board grip and on Liverpool winning the league for the first time in 30 years. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank you, David. <laughs> I know. That was David Morrissey, and time now for this week's news. So um, they dropped the trailer for season two of Criminal, which yes, we all loved, didn't we, first time around? Mm. Incredibly mm. simple premise of this Netflix show, which is the entire thing takes place in a police interview room. There's the police watching on on one side of the glass, the, the criminal, suspected criminal, and whichever detective's in the room with them on the other. And it just focuses on that interview with the clock counting down. We talked a lot about the incredible sound design and, and everything else with the show. I thought it was impeccable. And season two, because if we remember season one had David Tennant, for example, season two was shaping up to be just as kind of star heavy. Kit Harrington, Sharon Horgan, Sophie Okinado and Kunal Niyar. I mean, it looks phenomenal, exactly the same as um, the first season. Coming in a few weeks, I believe, towards the end of September. Mm. Can't wait for that. It just looked absolutely banging. One thing we didn't talk about when we reviewed this, we reviewed this on our live show actually last year, was the the slightly odd format that it has in that this was split into four parts. The UK version, Criminal UK, which was in English, only had three episodes. And then there was Criminal Spain in Spanish, Criminal Germany in German, and Criminal France in French, all using the same set, but in their native languages with completely different stories, completely different characters which is kind of mould-breaking as a way to kind of put a show together. Now, this one, I assume, follows the same format, but we have at least four English episodes yes. in this one. Well, yeah, so it, it said there's been no announcement yet on the in the other um, nationalities criminal. But, yeah, because I watched all of um, the British ones and then I watched, I think, the Germ- German one. 
and it is it's it's like really a really really interesting way to do it and i think we talked about the time you wonder whether that could be a way that lots of other kind of shows go um where it becomes a truly international show but yeah we are getting with those four lead characters because it's one case per episode we're definitely getting at least four british versions i think we'll be reviewing it next week if, if yeah, it's not i was um, gonna say <laughs> embargoed yeah so it'll be interesting to see how we work that out and whether we have mm. to watch all four stories or yeah it's a challenge for us <laughs> but that wasn't the only trailer that we saw this week though the first trailer for mike flanagan's the haunting of blind manor dropped did you guys see that yeah. No. Yeah. It's yeah. A, that looks exciting. good. Does it look good? Yeah. Yeah. Looks really good. And that's not far off either. That's very exciting. Uh, and there was also an early teaser for CBS All Access's The Stand, which drops in December, which I am a hundred percent here for because it's The Stand. <laughs> and I, I mean, I even love the '90s TV miniseries. So I mean, it's an incredible Stephen King story. That yes, Boyd does get a bit supernatural at the end, and we'll obviously yeah. pull your tits off in the final few episodes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's it's great. It's epic. It is, I guess, bar the dark tower his magnum opus so um yeah very excited about that one uh, james did you see the arnie news i did yeah <laughs> of course you did i mean of course you did <laughs> what's going so, on <laughs> so a, a kind of true lives for telly yeah two, true lives for telly so this is a sky dance tv production um sky dance are obviously the people who were did terminator franchise and things like that they're doing a spy adventure tv series um which is a father and a daughter and he's exec producing also i think they're currently casting for a daughter it said so i mean i i'm not gonna lie this got me excited. I lost a bit of feeling in my left hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm curious. It could be unspeakably terrible, but it also could be brilliant. So it, um, who knows? Who knows indeed? It could indeed. be a bit Taken 2, right? Taken 2 where Liam Neeson and his daughter go looking. Taken 2 is terrible. Maybe there's a bit of... <laughs> I mean, mm. you know, I didn't say it was amazing, but I'm just saying as a model, maybe um, maybe that could work. But Arnie running around um, with his daughter solving crimes, just if his daughter is not called Jenny, then I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, did you see that NOS 4R2 got cancelled after yeah, two seasons? I mean, so we won't be seeing that coming again. Sorry, Joe Hill. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, there was some genuinely exciting Star Trek news. Yes, there was. Yes. Star Trek Discovery has cast the franchise's first trans and non-binary characters. Mm -hmm. mm. Not only that, but the uh, trans character, who's called Grey, who has spent his life as a trill planning to be a host for a symbiotic alien species that lives in different hosts over its lifetime, I don't know what that means, is being played by Ian Alexander of the OA fame. Yes, he is. Who was Buck in the OA and was absolutely brilliant in the OA. And um, I think it's very exciting. And also, newcomer Blue Del Barrio plays Adira, the non-binary character. Um, and that is, and you have to. Star Trek ha has always had a brilliant history of diversity in its casting, and back to absolute proper classic original Star Trek. And so, I think this is uh, very interesting news. Very uh, has news. there been um, trans representation on 
Star Trek before. There've been there've no. been non-binary characters no. only in that they've had races that don't have genders before. Right. Um, but no, not not in this sense that I'm aware of. Uh, interesting, there, boy, that you were asking about trills. I can, of course, tell you all about the trill race, famously embodied by Terry Farrell in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine as Lieutenant Commander Jadzia Dax, who had the uh, the Dax symbiote. Her name was Jadzia. So it's the host trill, and they have a little worm, which is the Dax symbiote, which is in a little pouch on her stomach. Although she dies and gets replaced by Esri Dax, who is another another host for the Dax symbiote. And they turn up, I believe, in Next Generation before they turn up in Deep Space Nine, the Trill race. It's quite fun. Symbiotes. Yay. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, Discovery obviously made uh, strides in this direction with uh, with uh, Lieutenant Commander Stamets and Hugh Culber, you know, having an on-screen gay relationship there. Uh, mm. What else has been happening in the world? Breeders is returning to production. Never mind. Oh, yes, I saw they started. <laughs> Yeah, I Cheating. thought it would be both, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. More. Even COVID couldn't stop that from coming back. <laughs> you know what somebody pointed out, though, on Twitter this morning, kind of in an in a unrelated but related bit thing, which is um, Giri Hadji hasn't been, or there's been no announcement of Giri Hadji being recommissioned, right? Which no. seems Which seems mad to me, given the reviews and and kind mm. of you know obviously i think it won a bafta did it not mm. um yeah boyd have you heard any rumblings no, I mean, somebody was, was just saying how odd it is yeah i think it was uh, i mean it, it is it, it could be considered to be a self-contained you yeah. know story um mm. having said that i'm sure um the creators would love love it yeah. if there was a second series and they would definitely work out a way of doing a second series so yeah i yeah i don't it's a very good point yeah i'd love to see a second series of it yeah because it was fucking brilliant um but I wonder if it's partly. I'm sure it was really expensive, um, yeah. And I think you know it's it's become a show that people have discovered on Netflix after we're now on BBC Two and everything. I mean, I hope they get their act together and make us and, and do do something. Perhaps it's going to be replaced by a right wing comedy of some fashion. So yeah, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, yeah we the should new talk BBC about this. DG, yeah, Tim Davy has. Well, I mean, he has. By the way, yeah, he hasn't said this. Publicly, this was reported in like some the Telegraph, <laughs> the Telegraph, yeah, um, and he didn't say anything of the sort in his actual speech. So it was reported that he wants to he wants to get rid of left wing satirical comedy shows. I think they're particularly talking about you know actual things like. Um, panel shows that are too that full of left-wing comedians and allegedly um and the mash report which is you know which is definitely you know a kind of you know a satirical topical sort of show but of course the mash report interesting actually makes sure it has right-wing comedians on it in quotes mm. right-wing comedians you know there aren't that many out there for a start but there are there's like a handful of them and they're often on the mash report um so the whole story was typically stupid culture or bullshit on one level but on another level, if he if it's if there's any truth to the fact that he he definitely talked about in his speech that he's going to revamp the make sure that that there's an there's an impartiality to the BBC in some magical new way. So what actually that turns out to be is yet to be seen. Well, because right, his, isn't the I, isn't the point that satire especially works by poking fun at um, power. So yeah. the people who hold power, the people who exercise power. So it's always government. So when it's a Labour government, you have jokes at the expense of the Labour government. And I think making this weird left-wing, right-wing distinction is kind of mad when it's just satire works, especially social satire and satire uh, on the nationality work by 
poking fun at the people in power and the people in power at the moment are Tories. Um, but I mean, the the comedians on the BBC also, let's be frank, I think they're probably more centrists than they are left wing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure actually how many left wing <laughs> people this guy has met. But um, it, yeah. I understand well, that, you know, there's a, obviously a push to um, decriminalise not paying the licence fee and that obviously threatens the foundation of the BBC. And I think we all believe very strongly that the BBC is a vital broadcast mm. public broadcaster for this country. So I I wonder if it's obviously nerves around that and attempting to kind of make it seem more balanced because it is meant to be a public service broadcaster in, you know, it's in service of us and this country. But you you just gotta hope that it I mean I don't want to turn on my Italian see loads of right-wing comedians. I want to know what no. right-wing comedy looks like. Is it like the anti-home where a couple from Surrey run around persecuting a Syrian refugee? Like, I don't really know what that is. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. No, it's quite... At the moment, it's quite... There are comedians out there, mainly, it has to be said, kind of middle-aged white guys, huh. who are making fun of woke, what they, yeah. you know, in heavy quotes, woke culture. And they're on that side of that tedious in my opinion um culture war you know so there's actually it's actually there's a really obvious space for right-wing comedy at the moment in quotes right-wing more certainly not left-wing and certainly anti anti-woke anti-political correctness that's that's that is a thing yeah so and and in fact i watched the first of frankie boyle's new series last night frankie boyle's got a returning political topical satirical show and he is probably prop i would describe him as properly left-wing definitely you know and he spends his time a lot, but he also in the previous series definitely had a go at um at Labour, you know, and anti-Semitism in Labour and um Corbyn. So you know, I think when there's and a lot, I think there are a lot of um there are a lot of jokes made at Corbyn's expense. In fact, yeah. much, so many. In fact, one would say that Corbynites, huh. the proper, you know, I mean, I voted for Corbyn twice, by the way, before we get in, before people accuse me of being a you know liberal centrist twat, but. People, they Corbyn supporters were furious at some of the. There was a sketch about him that they were absolutely furious about, and any jokes about him, any satirising of him, any any satirising based on the idea there was an anti-Semitism problem in the Labour Party, you know, which there was, was considered outrageous by his supporters. So there has been, um, in, you know, that kind of satirical comedy aimed at Labour and aimed at the left, particularly of Labour. Is it, is it because having platformed Jeremy Clarkson for the better part of 20 years, now that he's gone, the needle has swung too far the other way, that he was the bulk of their right-wing content? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Yeah, he was. They, they were. They, all, their, all their jokes were, you know, were at the expense of minorities and wokeness <laughs> and all of that. Yeah. But you, know, but, you know, I think it's, I think it's impossible to, I mean, rid the BBC of of things because we're talking about people right Andrew Neil who is the chairman of the Spectator as well as being on the BBC uh, the Spectator which in my opinion has published far right content before and is is very clearly right wing and that's you know that's that and when you're dealing with people um I just don't know how you police something like that because also comedy is of a time and references the time and references what's happening at the time there's a lot of um comedy about austerity which isn't funny but it's because we lived through a period of horrific austerity and and as james says what does what does right-wing comedy look like Woo-hoo, there's a child starving over there let's chuck a loaf of bread at it and stone it like a duck i don't know like what <laughs> Well, I don't even know what that looks like. I just think it's it, it's worrying times. I think if anybody, if a new director general feels under pressure to make those kind of distinctions, mm. um, because comedy and satire yeah. has been free to 
to satirise the, the people and the times. I'd be very interested to see what Shane Allen, who is the head of BBC Comedy, um, who I know quite well, who is a brilliant maverick figure. And in fact, he's the guy who brought back Frankie Boyle to the BBC extraordinarily. Considering Frankie Boyle was considered pretty out there after his Channel 4 career when he made some pretty extraordinary um, stuff on Channel 4. And he is he is no holds barred in terms of his 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 material. But Shane Allen somehow brought him back to the BBC. He's given him his, lots of stuff to do. And Shane Allen, I can't imagine... I, I tweeted the other day when this story... I'd love to be a fly on the wall on the meetings between the new, Tim Davey, the new DG, and his head of comedy, Shane Allen. And I can't imagine in a million years, Shane Allen's going, yeah, I'll get rid of I'll get rid of Frankie Boyle. I'm going to get rid of the match report. <laughs> it's not going to happen. There's no way he's going to do that. Well, we shall see. One thing we will definitely get to see, though, is The Mandalorian, which finally has a date, and it is October the 30th. And mercifully, it means it's a day-and-date thing for the UK and the US. We will see it then here as well, which is very exciting for us. Less exciting for the Swedes, who still don't have Disney+, Plus, so haven't even seen The Mandalorian Season 1. But... Nothing I can do about Only that. Only the Swedes. Uh, no, I'm sure there Sweden's are other countries. I happen to oh, know right. that Sweden in particular doesn't have Disney Plus yet, but I'm sure there are other countries that have not seen The Mandalorian. Uh, I just don't know a comprehensive Blimey. list of them. Did you see the other um, the other returning to production story that I wanted to mention? It's Line of Duty. That, um, yes. That, that's that's great news. And I, I following Jeb Mercurio on Twitter. First of all, he was tweeted he tweeted live from the BA flight because they film it in Northern <laughs> Ireland, and he tweeted live complaining furiously about people not wearing their yes, face I saw coverings, that. which was amazing. That was brilliant. Then he was like, "Blame BA for all going to you know get the get fucking COVID." Um, I'm paraphrasing. Then then um, when they. Started production. He's been tweeting a lot of pictures um, of production, um, and I love his kind of running commentary on the creation of this show. I think it's absolutely brilliant. But the other thing that kind of slipped out that wasn't really um, confirmed until until the BBC made it clear because this, of course, Line of Duty series six was supposed to arrive on our screens this autumn, mm. and it definitely won't arrive till next year. So, I mean, which is fair enough yes. considering they're still making yeah. it. Um, but yeah, that's so we'll have to wait a while, but. I'm sure it'll be worth the wait. It is even as we speak, floating down the lagoon on a bubble. Uh, yeah. Did you see the news about DB Weiss and David Benioff, the Game of Thrones mm. showrunners, are doing the Three Body Problem, which is a famous sci-fi trilogy that I have never heard of, let alone read. Uh, much <laughs> oh to my, my shock. Oh, I know, heard of it. I know. Yes, it's uh, it's a Chinese sci-fi trilogy written by Lou <laughs> Season. <laughs> Oh, no. oh, no. <laughs> We're all going for Monica. Um, yeah, so it's it's a sci-fi trilogy. Apparently, it's it's a big old famous epic one. And like I say, I've never read it. I was excited to see what these guys were doing next, and and this is a pretty cool thing to be doing. I was a little disheartened to see the amount of snarky hate that the internet generated. Oh, well, the final two seasons of Game of Thrones were rubbish. Like, yeah, all right, calm down. Um, they had their flaws, but they were not rubbish. Uh, but yeah, this is this is this is pretty good. It's, there's a whole big sprawling empire. There's a character following a father's death, being killed by people called Red Guards. There's a cultural revolution, aliens invading Earth. Lots of stuff going on. So I don't know. Yeah, they've done a big fantasy epic. Why not do a big science fiction epic? Yay. Mm -hmm. Weren't they supposed to be working on a Star Wars? Yeah, thing? Star Wars seems to be on hold at the, <laughs> at the moment. Oh, okay. uh, right. Everything Star okay. Wars, I think, is is being rethought, and probably rightly so okay. uh, at that, this particular point in time. But other things are still moving ahead, including some rather surprising things. The X-Files Albuquerque. Have you seen this? An X-Files animated 
comedy spin-off, which are words that should never appear in that order in a sentence, what? but they are. So Fox is developing an animated comedy spin-off of the X-Files, and it's going to be called X-Files Albuquerque. Chris Carter is executive producing, uh, and it's going to f- focus on an office of kind of misfit agents who investigate X-Files cases too wacky for Mulder and Scully to bother with. So it's like the X-Files B team with a dash of comedy. Kill no. it with fire, no. that's what I say. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. God. Last bit of news I should mention, Sony are planning a Marvel live action series based on the character Silk, aka Cindy Moon, mm. who's essentially girl Spider-Man, but not Spider-Woman or Spider-Gwen, but Silk. Though she has spider powers. I must admit, I'm not that familiar with this That's character. That's confusing. Uh, the character is Cindy Moon. is being adapted by Lauren Moon, uh, who worked on Good Trouble and Atypical on Netflix. Uh, and she, well, she's in talks, I should say. She's not actually necessarily writing. She's in talks to write the series. But uh, yeah, so th- th- the character is a kind of a Korean-American classmate of Peter Parker, who also, by happenstance, gets bitten by a radioactive spider. Don't know if it's the same one. And it gives her similar <laughs> abilities. So... Yeah, the actual character appeared in Spider-Man Homecoming, played by uh, Tiffany Espenson, but not the super version, just the girl character. Anyway, that's probably it for news, as we've been talking for about a week. So shall we move on now to this week's reviews? And first up is the confusingly titled Aquafina is Nora from Queens, in which you may be surprised to hear Aquafina plays a character called Nora, who in a shocking turn of events hails from Queens. Uh, this character is a kind of fictionalized version of Aquafina herself, hence the confusing title. Her alter ego here is a 27-year-old woman trying to figure out her place in the world, which in episode one revolves around finding a place to live that isn't her car and attempting to get a proper job. Boyd is Boyd from Pilot TV. What did you think of this one? <laughs> it's so James to be hooked up, get obsessed with the title, which is, I admit, confusing. Um, but you're reminded throughout. So it's a, there's a kind of the transitions between scenes. There's constant Aquafina is Nora from Queens. You're reminded of that device and of that. And I think... You know, I think she's brilliant. And let, let, let's let's face it. She, you know, we 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 saw her in Crazy Rich Asians and The Farewell and Ocean's Eight, and she's she is the ultimate scene stealer in all of those films. Like she is f- incredibly funny, um, kind of funny bones, like brilliantly, um, uh, or kind of radical figure that enlivens, you know, every scene that she's in. And this, she's telling a story very closely based on her own situation. And part of the um, comedy of it comes from that she's a 27-year-old, um, mostly unemployed. She gets, she has a, She's an Uber driver in the first couple of episodes. But basically, she's living with her dad, played by B.D. Wong. And I have to say, it's brilliant to see B.D. Wong, in, you mm. know, in, in, a, in a kind of just a normal guy role. Because I think he's, you know, regarded him as a bit of a character actor from the various films he's been in. Um, and she lives with him and her mother, her grandmother. Her, her mother's died, who's played by Laurie Tanshin, who is hilarious. And I, I like the whole setup of it, and I'm a big fan of her. So I was really looking forward to it. I have to say the actual show... I feel I felt like it definitely feels like a series of observations stitched together um, rather than a coherent kind of plotted thing. And I don't mind fairly plot light shows. You know, there are there are episodes of all kinds of comedies. Girls, when it started, you know, was fairly kind of freewheeling and plot light and a, a kind of a hangout thing. And I and I, she's a great character to hang out with. But I watched the first couple of episodes and I did think that it needs tightening up. And I felt like. 
the script wasn't necessarily as funny enough as I was expecting. So I think it felt almost like you've got her. She's a brilliant talent. She's brilliantly funny. Everyone in it is really, you know, is, is really, is doing a really good job, but I felt I needed, it needed more, I needed tighter, funnier scripts. And um, I felt I was slightly disappointed. You see, I, I liked that element of it. I liked mm. the loose, um, slightly freewheeling nature of mm. it, as you say. There's kind of a a a little setup each each episode. I watched the first two. Um, incredible. On the second episode, they go to Atlantic City, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, with her nana, and we should say her nana, um, who's played by Laurie Tanchin, is incredible. She is amazing as is bd wong who let me just say law and order special victim unit um (laughs) i liked the loot it reminded me a bit of girls as you say but broad city probably and it's all that kind of slacker you know a 27 year old who's still living with her dad and her nana loosely autobiographical as you say kind of you know how how did she end up 27 10 years almost 10 years after high school and is still living at home can't keep a job other people are becoming more successful and there's some interesting stuff that i'd never kind of seen really um dug into in in this kind of comedy around the asian community so she is half american korean her mother who's who's not a presence in the show she references and her nana and her gang of people of, of other women get into this uh fight essentially over an outlet with a group of korean women it's there's these really lovely little issues and delicate things dug into and it's really no holds barred in terms of talking about sex um incredible scene with the vibrator there's a lot of masturbation i feel like in this week's pod um and (laughs) it's i found not every bit as you say was laugh out loud and completely hit the mark but i thought it was really funny she is incredible i mean it's all her really as as, yeah. as i said that her nan is brilliant but she is such an incredible performer has such an amazing magic about her um i don't think there's t- tons that's particularly new about it necessarily but i i enjoyed them as kind of little half hour episodes mm. i'm i'm a James? I'm a big, big fan of Laurie Tanchin. I thought she was great in Orange is the New Black, and I think she's possibly my favourite thing about this show, uh, just because I think she's a brilliant supporting character. But this is this is very Aquafina, isn't it, in that she, there's so much yeah. of her in all of her roles, whether it be in Crazy Rich Asians, whether it be in The Farewell. Like A lot of her comes through, and this whole show is built around that persona that is her, which, I mean, the title makes a lot of sense because it is very much about her. Um my issues with this largely are, and I think you've kind of both touched on it, is that it's very, very aimless and rambling and didn't seem to be getting to any point any particular time soon. And also I found the comedy, while I enjoy her as a character, I found her entertaining and she is comedic. I thought a lot of the gags were a little bit broad and a bit like, ah, ah. And that said, I did laugh out loud when the the Uber passenger got hit by a car, which is incredibly pure. Yeah, that, the the Uber montage was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah. made me giggle. I think there was one other point as well that did that did make me laugh. You know, and there's a bit with a cam situation and a tail and a fight. You know, there's there's stuff going on which is a little bit slapstick, which is it was just gently amusing. But I think it's one of these things where this show is fine. It's you know she's a lot of fun in it. I'm sure if you enjoy that kind of hanging out with fun characters 
slightly aimless comedy format you'll enjoy it but i need more i need a story i need a purpose to it it's not enough that i find her gently entertaining i think uh with the amount of good tv around for me to want to kind of press on with this unfortunately but uh not a bad show but also a comedy which is not my forte so make of that what you will aquafina is nora from queens of course lands on bbc3 in its entirety, the whole first season on Sunday, the 13th of September. Next this week is Catherine Ryan's new Netflix show, The Duchess, which isn't an adaptation of the Kira Knightley period drama, but rather a comedy based on Ryan's experiences living in London, in which she stars as a chaotic Canadian and single mum balancing a boyfriend, an ex-husband, and some rather interesting dealings with the local mummy mafia outside the school gates. Terry, without using either the words hot or mess, uh, what was your verdict on the Duchess? So, um, I I was very disappointed by this. I'm just going to cut straight to the chase because I think what you'd probably expect based on, you know, recent television is something within the realms of motherland or mm. catastrophe, that kind of very awkward, brutally honest comedy about the difficulties of being a parent. As you say, um, this is very much about Catherine Ryan being a single mum. And in the show, it's loosely based on her life, but in the show, essentially, she's a mum to a nine-year-old after she had a failed relationship with a 90s boy band star. And I laugh because that that premise is just kind of hilarious but the i suppose the tension comes when she decides she wants a sibling for the kid and is considering having one with both her um ex and with this new boyfriend now the problem with this show is i think it's for me it's all about shock value so the opening scene she's walking down the street with her kid to school and she's and it's never mentioned but she's wearing a jumper that says world's smallest pussy <laughs> on it right and i was like okay and from there that's the kind of um it it's, it was setting the tone for what was mm. going to come so the insults to the other mums and to the teachers are more rude and more shocking than anything you've seen. The way she talks to her child, the way she talks to her ex, the way she treats her boyfriend. Um, and it's that classic thing of defensive, been hurt before, single mum who puts these boundaries up. Um, and for, for that to kind of work, you need to have these moments of tenderness that really kind of speak, I suppose, to the love at the heart of this relationship and by this relationship, I mean, between her and her daughter. I watched the first four and there's one moment at the end of episode three where a little bit of genuine emotion comes in. Apart from that, it's pretty much for me all shock value. And I think Catherine Rowan, by the way, who I think is a brilliant woman and a brilliant comedian, um, I don't think she's the greatest actor. Um, and I felt like I was watching stand-up, not that I was watching a sitcom. So I know she does a lot in her stand-up about being a single mum. And so it felt like that. It felt like a series of vignettes with a punchline um, without actually, I felt, any proper storytelling. So it really leans into those punchlines and works hard to set them up. I mean, there's no showing it's all telling. Tell, tell, tell in the kind of loudest voice possible. I didn't buy the relationship with her and her boyfriend or her and her ex. And her daughter is, you know, a, a lovely little actor. But 
I I found that that lovely mix, which I really love in comedies, female comedies like this, in Motherland, you know, it can be brutal at times and it can be harsh and some things when they come along really shock you, but there's tenderness and there's there's a reality to it, which, um, which I really enjoy and relate to and need to, to be invested in those characters. But this felt like a series of sketches almost and a constant need to be more shocking and more offensive and say even more ridiculous things and wear even more ridiculous things. Um, so I didn't, I couldn't buy into it and I couldn't buy into her character or her relationship with her daughter or her relationship with the men in the show. Um, and I did watch four because I wanted to see if it was just a case of establishing them broadly. And then we dig deeper into some kind of true emotions and storytelling. And the four I've seen that just doesn't come through. And I just found it incredibly disappointed because I need there to be a bit of heart along with the comedy. Some of the gags are really funny, but you know, Catherine Ryan is a funny woman. She's a comedian. That that is that is always going to be there. But there was no for me actual even tiny element of of true drama and um uh and you know a uh, any depth of character that I could then get really engaged with, fall in love with her, fall in love with her daughter, be invested in them. That just didn't happen for me and I will not be watching anymore. Yeah. I think I I, I liked it slightly more than you, but you, you know what? I had this weird experience where, I mean, I know we shouldn't, possibly shouldn't refer to other reviews, but this is just what happened to me. So I'm going to come out and say, I read the Variety <laughs> That's review. That's an absolute right? mullering. Right. <laughs> Before I'd seen it. Now, I'm just going to quote the end of the Variety <laughs> reviews. I think it's I think it's extraordinary. Personally speaking, the Variety critic wrote, I hope that even if she's never handed a megaphone, i.e. Catherine Ryan, as, masses, as massive as Netflix is, she grows up to do more than create art as devoid of purpose, humanity, <laughs> or worth as the oh, Duchess. Yeah. Right? That's a bit harsh. I gave it not. Yeah. A bit harsh. Yeah. I mean... He has gone ballistic, mm. this this variety's critic, about this show and talks about it being excruciating, blah, 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 blah. He has pers- he's personally offended by there's a There's a joke about adoption yeah. and he has got an adopted um, child, this critic. Yeah. So he's taken that personally and offended by that. That's I feel like, so I'm not, to not spend too much time, Chris, but I found this, this review extraordinarily over yes. the top and insane because yeah. I quite enjoyed it. So I was like, oh, I'm quite enjoying it. It's fine. You know, um, where I do agree with you, I think it's I think it's try hard, and I think a lot of it is, um, as you say, trying hard to shock. I kind of was like, well, it's not actually that shocking, you know, the the, no. the pussy top and the the being her relationship with the. I thought her relationship with the daughter was the best mm. element of the whole thing, which I feel is should be the whole point of it. Really, is depicting a relationship between a single mum and that age daughter, um, which to, to differentiate it from other shows of a, of a sli- with slightly similar things going on. And I like, and I thought the, 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 the actress playing the daughter was great. And I thought their scenes together were believable and good, but then the, so much of the rest of it teetered on the verge of being unbelievable because it was trying hard, trying hard to shock. And her actions, you know, and what she says from moment to moment, I didn't buy, I just didn't buy some of those like one-liner harsh, cruel moments. And I I didn't mind the depiction, harshness and cruelty, you know, there are elements in in Motherland, you know, where everyone's being being a bit of a bellend, right? But 
you believe it because I just think there's a there's a, there's a confidence to that script writing was they're not trying too hard they're just they, they establish those characters and you believe them and you, and you kind of go along with the moments where they're doing stuff that's a bit beyond the power breeders funnily enough I mean actually breeders which 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 some people think sets out to shock, but actually I don't necessarily think that's the case. I believe those people's reactions. I believe their inter, inter, interactions with their kids. I just didn't buy a lot of this stuff in this show because it is trying too hard. That's my main issue with it. But I don't think it's a work of evil. It's like not, it's not a work it of evil. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I do think it was it's challenging and probably not the greatest call to to have an episode which features a black social worker who she's talking to about adoption and her character say to that social worker you can keep your crack babies i think that yeah. is not the wisest bit of writing and i think intended or not that plays into certain racial stereotypes right um yeah. and and so maybe he's he as you say he took it personally because he's been adopted himself or whatever i mean but it's and but to your point there's such a lack of humanity in her character and every, she's harsh about everything all the time mm. and whenever she shows weakness it's contrived weakness not genuine human weakness and as funny as you ever want half hour sitcoms to be there david they managed to get humanity into david brent david brent's humanity saved mm. one that one you know that one moment every episode where you saw him as a human being and felt a bit sorry for him and empathize with him because you know th there is arguably an opportunity to do a thing about single mums if you think about catastrophe and and motherland and and these are people often with massive support systems of some degree yeah. this really is about a woman on her own who lives in this country and had a child here and has a ridiculously unreliable ex and this new guy um who she's probably not that into and that there's the material is rich the scene is rich but none of it was treated with any level of seriousness whatsoever which makes the whole thing like one big one big joke and it's it's one thing having a tough single mom character who's trying her best and there's a and you can relate to that and then she's also you know maybe she has got a mouth on her maybe like she does have some abhorrent views that's fine but you don't ever get into into any nuance with that character at all she stands there and just shouts rude things and challenges conventional and traditional morality and family values and stuff like that but without any other light and shade whatsoever Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think there's an issue in the casting as well. I was thinking I didn't like the the, the boyfriend, the ex, the ex boy band, who's pop star, really? Keenan. Who's, who's I know. I was like, no, irritating. he doesn't look like. No, but he also doesn't look like a boy. I mean, I no, know that sounds stupid, but but no, he doesn't. Yeah, it's it's a problem. And I think you know when you can casting is so important. I was thinking of like because he's kind of a bit like um, in catastrophe, Sean Organ's brother's character. Yeah, he was brilliant, right? He yes. was brilliant, and it's so important to get people who can do that. And I just felt, oh, I just didn't buy that this 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 character of her ex and their interactions. They're like they have these rows where they're bickering with each other and slagging each other off. I just didn't. It, it didn't. It, it it didn't come across as as real to me. At all. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You mentioned that in particular at that clunked with me their exchanges felt like very self-satisfied screenwriting yes and then she'll be this yes. singer and then this singer comes back and that people do not speak like that they just don't even in, even in sitcoms they really shouldn't um i think you're right this is nowhere near the televisual hate crime that variety seemed to make out that it was i mean this clearly touched a nerve with that critic and you know fair enough but it, it's it, it's nowhere near that bad it's just 
as you say, it tries very, very hard and doesn't quite succeed. You know, I'm normally here for characters who, like any school mother who comes up to the school gates and calls her daughter's classmate a tasteless little ditch pig, whatever that is, or in, in, instantly has my attention because I found that quite fun. But yeah, it just, it was a bit wearisome. Some of the lines were quite funny but some of them were a little bit cringe inducing and the characters are just very broad caricatured archetypes mm. and i just thought there's no inner life to these characters there's no nuance to them we've seen all of these characters done far better elsewhere and in a world where catastrophe and motherland exists this kind of like oh yeah i bring the truth bombs and the nuclear weapons to the school gate argument it's like no 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 no. this has been already knocked out of the park and you are you know this is barely a punt i don't know what you're doing to use weird sports metaphors um yeah, I, it, but it's a, you have to earn the ditch pig, right? You yeah. have to earn the ditch pig. So in other shows, you earn it, and here that's their base yeah. base level is ditch pig, and everything, and it escalates so quickly yeah. that you've you're, you've nowhere left to go at all. So your character exists in this very slim strata of hatefulness, mm. and that's it. That one note throughout the entire thing. And I, that's why I watched four, because I thought maybe they're going to broaden out and build out her character as the episodes go on. And I mean, I think four episodes should be plenty to see if she's actually going to develop any other sides. And it's just not I there. I will say, I thought Kate Byrne, who plays her daughter Olive, was excellent. I really liked her. Yes. But yeah. Yeah, but that was great. basically yeah. it. She is the high point of the show for me. I felt I felt everything else just didn't work. But I yeah. think, yeah, you're absolutely right. The pro- there is a problem of escalation here where it just doesn't feel like it, the screenplay needed tightening. It needed to get to a point. And I think, you know, if you're going to shock people, yeah, do set a baseline and then escalate, you know, see where you're going mm. with it. This, Yeah, it, it, it didn't work for me. Won't be watching anymore. <laughs> But anyway, should you like the sound of this particular show, The Duchess drops on Netflix on Friday, <laughs> September the 11th. Next up this week is the long, long, oh so very long awaited debut of Hulu's High Fidelity. Uh, this is an adaptation of the Nick Hornby novel from the 90s, which spawned the 2000 John Cusack movie. But this time it stars Zoe Kravitz in the title role as Rob, a music obsessive and record shop owner living in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Uh, hot fact, Zoe Kravitz's mother, Lisa Bonet, appeared in the Cusack movie. There you go, yep. true story. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's taken most of a year for this show to finally make its way to British shores, uh, during which time, and despite rave reviews and in a crime that I cannot even fathom, this show has managed to get bloody cancelled, which is a quite extraordinary decision on Hulu's part. But don't let that put you off, because this, spoiler, is fantastic. Boyd, other than the undeniably awesome soundtrack, did this one do it for you? Absolutely, yeah. I mean... I'd, I had watched, like you, I think I'd watched some of it um, mm. anyway. So, and it's taken an extremely long time. And I, 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 you know, I have to stop myself from slagging off. It's on. It's coming up on Stars Play, isn't it? Here on on Amazon Prime via Amazon Prime. And they have to. Not only have they taken an incredible time to get around to showing it, they told me they told us <laughs> the publicity people that it wasn't going to be on this week. Then they said, "Oh no, actually, it is on this week. Too late for my <laughs> deadlines on my magazine." Anyway. Infuriating. This is I. Lo- First of all, I love Nick Hornby's original book, mm. High Fidelity, which is about a dude, and it's very much a dude's oh, world. So. That you know, I think you know, of of um, being a music mm. nerd and you know, kind of judging music and uh, pr- prioritizing some music over the other. The story of a guy of people working in a record shop, and um, his best mate worked there, played by Jack Black in the film version, which the film version was really good. I thought I really enjoyed that. It captured Nick Hornby's kind of laid back 
and yet kind of emotionally um, satisfying tone. The, the, the whole idea of him kind of dealing with his relationships by creating these lists, um, and his top five of everything, um, was a kind of device, almost like a gimmick in the novel. But the no novel was so kind of human and real and uh, emotionally involving and moving and funny that you kind of it didn't didn't matter that this gimmick was there. And now they've made this TV version, um, exec produced by Nick. Hornby, but um, starring Zoe Kravitz, um, but developed, created by Veronica West and Sarah Kusherka. And uh, of course, they've got brilliantly cast Zoe Kravitz as in that role as the record shop owner, um, with her mates working with her, played by um, Divine Joy Randolph as Cherise, who's one of her employees, and David H. Holmes um, as the other. And they are both all three of them are fucking brilliant, is all I want to say. I mean, first of all, to have Zoe Kravitz in a role where she's playing, you know, a three-dimensional person who we get to know in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of different levels. Because I think we've seen, I think she's done a lot of stuff, you know, I think I think of Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies, she spent almost the entire series in a state of high <laughs> trauma, you know. It was like in tears almost every single episode. And it must have been exhausting her for her to play that role. Here, she's such a kind of fascinating human figure and you just believe her and you and even on one level it's like you know this bunch of beautiful good-looking hipsters you know in their world in brooklyn oh yeah you know I'm, i can't i can't get too involved in that but it's not it's like she's absolutely completely you completely buy into her world right from the beginning when she's listing her top five um failed relationships the device works beautifully and her talking to camera is so brilliantly done. Like that can be an it happens a lot in the series. You know, the series is kind of built on that, but she does it mm. so brilliantly that she's you're fully fully embrace her and you're fully engaged with her. Then you've got Kingsley Benadir of the OA fame season two as her, the kind of love of her life, if you like, who we first meet. They they've just split up and they kind of have a kind of split up, come back together thing going on kind of complicated which is which is shown in various flashbacks and flash forwards and I thought that was dealt with brilliantly he's fantastic incredibly handsome fascinating figure using his London proper London accent by the way rather than playing an American I fucking loved it and on top of everything um, the tone of it it just captures that kind of laid back almost sometimes woozy kind of tone and yet the stakes in the relationships and in people's love lives and in trying to find your you, you know your your dream person the one is so convincingly done that it kind of weirdly it's like weirdly laid back and yet taught and 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 kind of not no no you know no fat on the on the flesh if you like i loved it and there's an underlying thing that the music mm. is great and that 80s music is the best music of all because when it comes down to it all the best scenes are to like dex's midnight runners you know david bowie modern love absolutely brilliant stuff which i personally fully endorse so i really loved it and oh my god just to say divine joy randolph scene stealingly <laughs> brilliant as the employee of the record shop in an inc incredible character it's really brilliant why they fucking cancelled it is beyond all reason it can't be expensive you know it's not like that inexpensive show i don't know you know it's 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 you know it's a fairly intimate small scale Deranged. thing but the stakes are massively high in the relationship so i thought it was fantastic Oh my god, I fucking love this! Like <laughs> I watched uh, seven episodes <laughs> of this, um, and literally only didn't watch the last one because of of uh, my baby needed to go to bed, and I kept him up all night. 
So here's the thing. I was, I've never read the book. I was obsessed with the 2000 film. So I think I've seen the 2000 film about a hundred and something <laughs> times. Um, and it is important to note that some lines are word for word mm. out of the screenplay and other things are completely different. So at first I was taken aback because there are whole segments which are literally, especially the um, breaking of the fourth wall. There's some camera stuff, which John Cusack did, but they manage brilliantly to make it feel really modern, but not in a really try hard or clumsy way. So there's a whole thing um, where somebody comes in and wants to buy a Michael Jackson record and they have a conversation about um, Michael Jackson being a, a alleged child molester and therefore are you able and allowed morally to sell them this record? And they do little things like that, which are done really beautifully, which mirror something in the original, but actually they've given it kind of a modern conversation. I could not agree more on Divine Joy Randolph, who honestly is magnificent. And the way those two characters have been reimagined, but also are completely true to the original. So like still wants to be in a band like Jack Black, writes the note for the wall and watches people come in and um, is the massive kind of energy and mouth. There's a brilliant, brilliant scene where she puts on Come On Eileen <laughs> that is just like absolute full of joy really interesting by making david h holmes's character one of her top five which had which was obviously different to the um a film he's also gay which is different to the film and i think it's it's important that this is john cusack's story is now the story of a black queer woman in america and i think that gives it a really interesting take and even though she's reading some of the same stuff as that rob the male straight white Robert originally read, it just feels completely different and it feels so fresh and new and exciting. And she is Zoe Kravitz, my God, she is absolutely magnetic. And it's interesting because when I read they'd set it in Crown Heights, she lives in a pretty big apartment, even though it's Crown Heights. She's kind of a unicorn in that mm. you'd imagine every man's fantasy. How much can I relate to a woman who has an incredible vinyl <laughs> collection? Owns a record store. Yeah. Looks like Zoe Kravitz. Talks like, like, is Zoe Kravitz? Like, is that believable that I'm going to think? Because obviously Rob's always meant to have been a bit of a loser, really, at the heart of it and unable to hold down relationships and a commitment vote. But she's so brilliant. Her The way she wears her flaws. I mean, she's just incredible. I love the nods to the film. So obviously her mum played Marie DeSalle. Um, and the bar they hang out at is called DeSalle's. There's these lovely little respectful nods. She herself ends up kind of having a fling with a rock star, which is the same essentially as her mum did with John Cusack. I think it's just brilliant. The soundtrack, and I know there were some great music consultants on this. The soundtrack is incredible. Um, I found it also believable. I just think she is a magical, magical, magical actor. And as Boyd says, the stakes are really high. So it's got this lovely laconic kind of, like, oh, it's just like you ease into it. And then you're in it and it's so compelling and so gripping. And you, even when she acts like a bit of a bell and James, <laughs> which she does at times, you so root for her and you want her to be happy. And I just fell in love with pretty much all the characters. Um, I just love this world that they've created um, in Brooklyn. I love it. I love it. I love it. And the thought 
that there's not going to be a second series is just like, I can't get my head around it. It's bonkers no. because this is one of the things I've enjoyed most in ages, actually. Just really, really, really enjoyed mm. it. Oh, It's insane, yeah. It my insane. first day at Empire was the High Fidelity premiere. I covered that <laughs> my first day on the oh, job. Wow. Um, Wow. Yeah, this is the one of the best shows of the year, hands down. Like it's 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 absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And for all the reasons you say now, this show passes the Bell End test spectacularly, in that no one is a Bell End mm -hmm. in it. Like and even when they are slight Bell Ends, they're incredibly likable and engaging and sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And I think she's you know, she's at times maddening and she makes terrible decisions, but she's also just so lovable and so deep and layered. And part of it is because you get so much of her inner voice as she talks to the camera, but she's also just really laid back and good company. And you enjoy spending time with her and with her like crazy friends in the record store. And as you say, Divine Joy Randolph is brilliant. Um, you know, when she takes those two kind of crazy street kid wannabe artists under her wing, like oh my there's so much going on here, but it's, it's partly great characters and great character study. It's partly just an absolute love of music the soundtrack is amazing also introduced me to the band silk roads which i played an awful lot after listening yes. to this yes. i shazammed me that too. when i was listening to it i was like this is great um but it also it's a really interesting study of kind of millennial relationships and modern romance and how mm. relationships between you know the mid 90s and now have evolved and how people interact evolves and it's a it's a brilliant kind of slice of that part of life and i think it, it portrays it really really well and really really genuinely and you know everyone all the reviews for this used ridiculous like vinyl metaphors but i do think it's it's out that this isn't a remake it is like a cover version like it does feel like it's a totally yes. different interpretation but it's similar enough that you see the dna that runs through both of them and yeah i think i think this works because it's beautifully written i think it works because the source material is clearly beloved uh in this but also i think uh i you know I, it, it works because the casting is fantastic and i think more than anything else kingsley benadir david h holmes is great and zoe kravitz absolutely anchors this completely anchors it and you to the point where you almost can't imagine this with someone else in that role and yeah as you say not being able to see another season of this is a crime that's almost on a par with the OA being cancelled. Like, it's madness. But, but, and I will say this, it does work as a standalone piece. And I think no one should feel put off by the fact that there won't be a season two because it's not like there's a massive cliffhanger. We will never see how it ends. It doesn't matter. It actually works as a contained, perfect, beautiful season of television. So I think there is no excuse for not watching this. It's it's a masterpiece. It might, yes. it might just be, in, in, yeah, I agree with all that. And also episode eight is a standalone episode from um, uh, David Holmes. Dude's point of view. Um, <gasps> David Holmes, yeah. Which may well be the best it's episode. Genius. I'm sorry. Oh I mean, my God. They're all, yeah, it's, it's fucking incredible. How many it's is so there in total? Ten. So there's ten. ten. Yeah. I've got three left. Um, um, but that, you know, it's like that's such a brilliant episode. And that's the episode also in which Dry the Rain by the Beta Band, which was such a focal, that was the song of the film, mm. that brilliant scene where Jack Black picks that song um and that is played out in episode eight which mm. i thought was brilliant um because i was obsessed with the film as well i probably haven't seen it as many times as you but just imagine i just sat there thinking, all kinds of things thinking nick hornby must think, be thinking you know they have taken my book and then and turned it in and first of all it turned into a really really good film and now there's this just beautiful yeah. thing with these brilliantly cast people in it every member of the cast is so perfectly perfect in it he much was thinking, what you know, it doesn't get better than this, and then yeah. they fucking cancelled it. I mean, devastating. 
but yeah, you know, luckily it's, it's the lead character is a, a queer black woman, but the show isn't about her yeah, sexuality. Yeah. They've just got these incredibly diverse and rich lives that you want to be part of. It's such a beautiful little world they live in, and um, difficult at times. And but and it's just it for me. It's one of those shows that nails what modern life really looks like without picking out one mm. element of it gender or whatever it may be and making it all about that it's about all these loves and relationships and lives and um, but they're just an incredible group of people and as james says the way they've made the modern world come to life and you think even with that foundation from 1995 and not shoving in like you know texting at every point but but dropping in really credible references which show how people do meet now and how they hook up and you know the the modern yeah. pitfalls versus the kind of older ones and you know the use of instagram which obviously wasn't in the film but obviously that's how you now kind of stalk people is via instagram <laughs> so i've heard but yeah. oh, i just i just can't say enough good stuff about it uh, so and i i'd kind of heard some lukewarm things and wasn't you know that overly excited and if anybody's listening to this and you've read anything which makes you feel like this they're categorically wrong this is yeah. not subjective <laughs> well it is but take it from us this is excellent mm. and as soon as i'm done i'm going back to the beginning and starting yeah. again and they're short they're half hour She's episodes you know it's really half easy hour. to skip through i went yeah. through all 10 of these in no time at all so just wonderful telly. Brilliant. She's also a character who kind of who, who walks out of of um, situations, leaving leaving people behind with no no have no idea why what's going on. Which reminds me of a certain person's <laughs> memoir, I believe. <laughs> um, <laughs> tendency at one point to say, <laughs> "Yeah, oh no, just oh, oh, please, if somebody, if another channel would like to uh, pick this up, um, pilot." Mm. The Pilot TV podcast would be greatly supportive of that. Until that time, though, the one and only season of High Fidelity can be found on Stars Play beginning on the 10th of September with new episodes slightly maddeningly weekly. Finally, this week, ITV has broken into its piggy bank for the next show. Uh, it's an adaptation of J.G. Farrell novel The Singapore Grip, which you heard David Morrissey talking about earlier. <laughs> A satirical story set just after Japan's entry into the Second World War when it invaded Singapore. This story focuses on a British family living in the colony and running one of Singapore's main trading companies. Now, because you're all clearly wondering, and it does become a recurring motif in the show, a Singapore grip is a sex act that involves the flexing of the pubococcygeus muscles. That's all I'm going to say. That aside, that aside, Terry, did this show grip you? Ah, <laughs> So, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be bored by it and Boyd's going to like rally to its defence. So, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase. So, so we should say this is has all the calibre you would expect, right? So, it's produced by the team who did Poldark and Victoria. Um, Christopher Hampton uh, was the screenwriter who obviously landed an Oscar for Dangerous Liaisons. Um, the cast <laughs> is incredible. Jane Horrocks, um, Elizabeth Tan, as you mentioned earlier, David Morrissey, Luke Treadaway, Charles Dance, Georgia Blizzard. There is money and, and people <laughs> and glory everywhere. Um, I didn't, I, I've written satire mm. question mark because I didn't find it funny um, at all. And essentially, as you say, it follows this family. It's um, 
Uh, during World War II, against the backdrop of a Japanese invasion, there is a family. David Morrissey is the head of the family. James, I've written classic colonial <laughs> bellend, um, who, is, who basically plays Walter Beckett, who is a wealthy um, rubber baron, really arrogant, kind of looks down on the locals. I think we can all imagine what he's like. Um, his daughter, Joan, played by Georgia Georgia Blizzard, they have this quite um, a bit incesty relationship, I want to say. She's very spoiled. She's a bit of a nightmare. Um, Jane Horrocks is her mum. And then Luke Treadaway kind of is this guy who's, um, he's Charles Dance's son. Charles Dance is, is on his last legs. He's basically frantically trying to get to Singapore, but it actually opens on him trying to find a woman, um, bombs dropping, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go back in time to tell the whole story. Boy, I know they're your favourite kind of stories. And yeah. it's about um, him and, and this relationship he strikes up with um, Elizabeth Tan. Now, all that kind of said, which is your basic premise, I just found this um, boring, basically. So, you you know, you've got buying to the family, buying to these tensions within the family, this backdrop of war, um, all these starry people. I just, I just found it really, really hard to care. I should say that it looks incredible. I mean, production-wise, it's exactly as you'd expect it to look. Obviously, a lot of money's been spent. Um, I think if you are after a classic... Sunday night, uh, probably not even on a Sunday. But if you want a classic no, Sunday, yeah. oh, it is. If you yeah. want a classic Sunday night premium ITV period thing, this is your bag. I found it quite hard to get to the end of the first episode because I wasn't really invested in anyone. I didn't really care about the family. They all grated on me. Um, I'd like to hear if any of them passed your bell and mm. test, James. Um, the tension that's obviously there about trying to um, arrange this marriage to protect this money. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I watched it after High Fidelity, <laughs> but I just couldn't bring myself to, <laughs> to really care. So um, this is not one for me, I'm The afraid. prosecution rests. Let's hear from the defence team. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, I liked it. Yeah, um, I think, I think, um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think I can only compare it to other. You know, it is a Sunday night period drama. Um, Drama's on. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, it's the most recent being, for example, Suitable Boy, which which a review, which I did mm. found boring. So I found that really boring, and I didn't, and I couldn't engage with that at all. Um, and I tried really hard. Whereas this, I, 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 I think actually, yeah. The, so the device, the classic device, that I've been banging on about of having the big incident at the right at the beginning and then flashing back uh, to explain. I think it foregrounds Luke Treadaway's character Matthew, who is the core of the sh of the story. So I, I, the 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 narrative, the thing that's driving me to want to carry on watching it. Apart from the fact that I do think I think the cast is so great, you know. I, so I, I, on the one hand, I love watching David Morrissey and you know all these people being posh bellends. I'm Did enjoying that. Did you not think that. he was over that David Morrissey was? And and this is where maybe they were stretching for satire, although I wouldn't call it satire. He was so ott no i thought I, I thought he was great i thought it was great and i, I think like um his the son the the work shy son played by luke newbury is more ott like he is really ott he's a total posh loser belen twat so it's kind of levels of of over the top and so i thought david royce absolutely was sinking his teeth into this character and was having a great time but i had a great time watching him doing it um I, I, I think elizabeth tan and how elizabeth tan's character is going to kind of relate to luke treadaway's character is going to be 
key you know this kind of like you know um dealing with the racism of the period and how it was for for the british the white british characters to have a relationship with a in quotes local would have been frowned upon obviously that so that interests me and and it was and it is suitably lavish and looks great and looks amazing so i i i, I enjoyed it yeah i enjoyed it a lot and i will and i mean i've, I've watched the first th three i think so i am invested in it i am Team Terry on this one, I'm afraid. Uh, yes. I did not love it. I, I take Terry's point about things being over the top. I do. I mean, I do think that's, that's deliberate here. I think it is the satirical thing that there is a. Yeah. There's a. That's no, it's not. There's though. a vein of comedy, and by comedy, I don't even also mean humour. It's the way it's played, the nuance of the performance is that there's a slightly heightened sort of comedic take on the characters, mm. if not necessarily mm. comedic material and weirdly that's why it lost me more than anything else that i found the tone of this really hard to engage with because it's not funny in a sort of traditionally humorous way but it doesn't take itself seriously enough for you to actually care about what's going on um and I think this was most, for me, most exemplified by what I could only describe as an intrusively jaunty score. Like, I found the jazzy trumpets yeah. and the irritating oboes quite, just, they bugged me all the way through this. And I found, again, they emphasise that tonality that they've clearly gone for here, what they call, quote-unquote, satirical, but is, you know, a, non, a slightly non-serious, more arch way of telling this story. And that particular tone just doesn't do it for me. Like I, as, as you well know, the more ridiculous the storyline, the more I want people to take it seriously. Like, I need to invest in this shit. And I just couldn't with this. You know, great people in it. Colin Meany, who I love, Charles Dance, David Morrissey, who is awesome. I think they all do a great job with this material. I think they will put on great performances, but it just no like this. This is going in the same bucket as a suitable boy and Little Birds and those other shows where you're just like it looked beautiful, it had a big old epic story, but I just couldn't bring myself to invest, and I just yeah, it lost me. I'm gone. Sorry. Yeah, I just didn't. I just didn't find the human story at the heart of it compelling enough, and maybe one episode isn't isn't enough to give it but i think if it's a full parter then you know and it's an hour <laughs> well, long or whatever it, so. <laughs> then yeah. yeah i just i didn't find their story compelling enough it's actually six, six parts, okay. by the way. Oh, six parts. Yeah, yeah. I think the Elizabeth Town Luke Treadway, that is the that's going to be the heart of it. But you don't see enough of that to yeah. in, in the first episode to um to invest in that element of it. But that is that will that is the heart of it, really. Um, it, you're right. It is. It has got a kind of. It's got a self consciously arch in quotes, satirical mm. tone, which goes yes. back to the book, yeah. I believe. I haven't read the book, mm. but that's, you know, I think that they're trying to capture that. And I think that's fine. I mean, I think it's perfectly fine. It's not, it's it's satire. It's, the big satire is, you know, is showing us the reality of these um, exploitative white British colonialists in this setting. And, you know, the 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 way, it, it, it's definitely dealing with those people in a judgmental way, if you like, but I still enjoyed, I'm still enjoying them being over the top and <laughs> posh and ridiculous bell ends at the same time. So that's why it did work for me, that I enjoy, I'm enjoying that tone really. Goes without saying this fails the bell end test. Um, well, the Singapore Grip begins on ITV on Sunday and will be dropping weekly. Uh, and that is it for this week's review. So those are not the only things out this week. What else have we got, Boyd? Uh, Why Women Kill is on Alibi from Friday, September the 11th. Have you seen that? I haven't, but it's got an incredible cast. Lucy Liu, um, uh, Kirby Hell Baptiste from mm. The Good Place. Uh, and it's got very, yeah, it's got weird 
premise of there's a 60s housewife, an 80s socialite, and a modern day lawyer, and it tells all their different stories of infidelity within that. So yeah, it sounds intriguing. But right, I and seen it yet. season two of LA's finest, the Jessica Alba cop show, drops on September the 10th as well. Now, a pick of the week, something which I've forgotten to do for about the last three episodes. Pick of the week should be fairly straightforward. High fidelity. Oh, yes, high fidelity. High fidelity. Yeah, yeah, it's Without definitely doubt. one of the shows of the year. It's yeah. awesome. Love it. High fidelity. Watch it. Stars play Thursday, September the 10th. Right, we are running very long this week, so if we're going to do banshees, let's keep them super quick. Who wants to go first? Okay. Um, uh, mine comes from inspired by Michael McGann DM'd me on, um, on, I think it was Instagram actually, or somewhere, reminding me of the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret, which was a comedy series um, created by David Cross, and which had an incredible cast of him, Sharon Horgan, Blake Harrison, Will Arnett, and Spike Jones. And on top of all that, I went to see the pilot of this being filmed. I went on set, and Russell Tovey was in the pilot. He was then, um, he couldn't do the series and Blake Harrison took his character took his role it's about this crazy American guy played by David Cross who ends up by accident becoming a salesman of an energy drink in London and it kind of just spins off into there into all kinds of insane over the top um, plot lines and characters but just those people just Sharon Horgan bouncing off David Cross so to speak with Blake Harrison Will Arnett Spike Jones in the background was fascinating now the, I, I sli- I'm slightly I, I would have chosen something else because I belatedly realised it's not available anywhere to watch I assumed it because it was shown on more 4 and Channel 4 here I assumed it would be on all 4 but it's not but it is on DVD if you, that's the only way of, um, of, of seeing it at the moment is to get it on DVD so apologies about that but it was a really interesting okay show. well Mine is, very, very quickly, is one of the shows that I bought Terry as part of her bumper birthday Banshee Bonanza, but she absolutely didn't watch it, and most people probably weren't listening, so I reckon I can get away with doing this properly. So this is Helix, <laughs> uh, which is a show that ran for two seasons began in 2014, and it was exec produced by Ron D. Moore, which I think is why I watched it in the first place. But it stars Billy Campbell and uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, who was in uh, Westworld, you will remember. Uh, he's in it as well. And essentially, it's a, a team go to this arctic bio research station where they've lost contact with the people there it's got a lot of the thing to it but um to try and work out why they've lost contact with them and there are genetic experiments and there's stuff's going on and the mystery gradually teases out there's a big pharma company there's a novic virus that turns people into zombies and then they can be cured by it and the people who are cured can control the zombies it is exactly as stupid as it sounds and yet and yet i found this strangely compelling i think partly because they draw the mystery out in actually quite a quite an effective way so you're quite curious as to what's going to happen that however is just season one season two is entirely different and was rubbish so am i recommending this no not really i'm merely stating it as a kind of a curio but that is helix and you can buy it i don't think it's streaming anywhere but you can certainly get it on amazon or apple tv although i can't say i'd necessarily recommend it anyway helix (laughs) (laughs) um i am probably going to do something which you'll say doesn't count and um but it's it's I've been inspired to do it because it's they've put it back on the telly for the first time in about a decade. Uh, so I'm going to Banshee Heroes. Um, I did this. Obviously I did this the- like four weeks ago. <laughs> when? <laughs> on, I know, yes, I and that's the best part of this. You were literally on the show when I did it. <laughs> that is brilliant. 
I was like, didn't you do this two weeks ago? <laughs> so, um, so all that remains for me to say is, this is all now on BBC, and I caught it on telly the other day, and actually thought this isn't as this is actually I'm better sure than we I literally discussed remember. it. Like we had a big old back and forth talking about it. Save I mean, the cheerleader, maybe. save the world. Are you sure it was an episode that Terry was on? No, it was. Sure I don't remember uh, James saying save the cheerleader, save the world. Um, I, I also say heroes. Excellent did you watch Heroes James. Reborn? No. That's when he tried. They tried to redeem <laughs> the show by bringing it back. Didn't work. Didn't work at all. Yeah. Well, on that note, that is it for another episode of the Pilot TV podcast. If you enjoyed listening to the show as much as we did making it, then please do head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And if you feel like it, a five-star rating, much as Matt Damon Stoneman did when he said the show was, and I quote, a brilliant bath time podcast. It is, of course, a podcast always best listened to nude. Uh, you can contact us fully clothed on Twitter and Instagram at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton and at Terry underscore white and all of that should tide you over until next week when we return to your ears with uh netflix's cuckoo's nest spin-off ratchet dennis kelly's the third day and as we mentioned earlier season two of interrogation drama criminal until then pilot out <laughs>